I want to share with you a word of encouragement this, this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Chronicles 28. And I, I just want, I want this to be a word of hope and encouragement to stir your faith. And it's really talking about our nation. This is something I feel like the Lord laid in my heart for this as we're heading into our 4th of July weekend, our Independence Day weekend. You know, as we look at the, the world and, and, and history and things that are happen, happening around us and things that are going on in our nation right now, doesn't, doesn't it seem at times as if the world is out of control? Okay, you know, you're going to have to help me out here. I wanted some interaction. Doesn't it seem like at times like the world is out of control? You know, it, it seems at times like the devil, devil's winning. I mean, honest, I mean, doesn't it sometimes uh, uh, seem that the universe is just careening out of control, that the satanic forces of evil and darkness, are, sometimes it feels like they're winning the nation. That's what it feels like. But I have a word of hope for you today. and We're, we're going to read a passage from 2 Chronicles 28 and 29. I want to start by reading the first four verses of, of 2 Chronicles chapter 28. It says this, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's, he's talking about idolatry. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he, and he made offerings in the valley of, of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering. In other words, human sacrifice, and his own, his own children, and the children of the nation, uh, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, now I want you to, to turn over to chapter 29, because Ahaz, he is one of the wickedest kings ever to rule in all of the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And now he is dead and his son Hezekiah comes to the throne. And, and when he comes to the th throne, I can't help but think that the people of the nation began to say to themselves, what hope is there? What hope is there? If the, if the father was that bad, what will the son be like? If the, if the nation declined this much in one generation, then what degradation will occur in the next generation? Surely there was, there was just a pall of hopelessness over the nation for those who loved God. But look at, at chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaz did not, Hezekiah did. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, in other words, the very first thing he did, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He said, we're going to have an openness to, to the word of God, and, and, and we're going to have an openness to God himself. Let's keep reading. He, he brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves. He says, Clean yourselves up and, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. He says, Clean up the temple and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the, of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps that have, and have not burned incense or, or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to, to the God of Israel. In other words, they've done, they've done everything that they know how to do up to this point in time just to stamp God out of the whole nation. It's what their, his, his father had done. 
He goes on and says, Therefore the wrath of the Lord came upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing. Hissing was a sign of contempt and, and ridicule, as you can see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. Well, thank the Lord for his word. Let's pray together, bow your head, and let's ask for his blessing on the word. Heavenly Father, you know how desperately we need to hear from you. Our nation has turned her back on you, and, and, and you have created us and you have planted us you have saved us for such a time as this and lord we desperately need your help so god i'm asking you to give us a word of encouragement today speak to us god deep in our innermost being and help us to stand firm on your word in faith reveal yourself to us in in power god on this day and may may it be said when we leave this place surely we have heard from god today and i believe you for it in the strong name of jesus i pray Amen. You know, as I have spent time thinking and and praying about recent events in our nation, I I couldn't help but ask myself the question, and maybe you've asked the question yourself, what hope is there for the United States? What hope is there for the United States? My mind, as I began to think about that, began to pray about that, my mind was directed back to something I heard some time ago from an evangelist who was involved in in outreach in Eastern Europe, immediately following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he, he, he went into Ukraine to preach the gospel to people who had, who had had no concrete presentation of the gospel in many, many years. And he, he shared some of those experiences. And he had, he had preached in many, many countries of the world, but he had never preached anywhere where he discerned a more profound grassroots appetite for God, just a literally a starvation for God. He'd never seen anything like it. He'd never experienced anything like it. And I began to think about his experiences and began to compare and contrast that with, with the hardness of heart and the unbelief of the American general public. And uh, I mean, listen, honestly, you could no more go down to the, you know, and stand in the middle of Wolf Chase Mall with a, with a band and a puppet show and declare the simple truth of the word of God that, that if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household will be saved and then expect hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of people uh, that are shopping there to get saved any more than we could expect to fly. Now, of course, we know with God all things are possible, but the fact of the matter is that given the discernment of this present age and the reality uh, of the contemporary American society around us, we all know that's not very likely. Am I right or am I wrong? Am I right? But, but this evangelist, when he went into Ukraine, he could stand on any street corner in Kiev on any day, any night, any time of day, any hour, and he could simply hold up a sign that, was, that said in Ukrainian, I know something about God, stop here. And soon traffic would be stopped for blocks around and hundreds and hundreds of people would would come forward and stop there right on the street to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. They didn't have an auditorium, no band, no orchestra, no puppet show, none of those things. Now those things are good, there's nothing wrong with those things, but but in in, in that nation there was such a hunger for God that all it took was a simple declaration of truth. And so I I said to myself, what hope is there for our nation? 
And the Lord reminded me of this evangelist as he flew back from the Ukraine back into the United States and he asked the very same question as he was comparing his experience there with what life is like in the United States. And he flew back in, into New York City as he, as, he, as he flew in there and he saw the Statue of Liberty. He wondered if there was any hope for America. And the Lord spoke a powerful, stirring, encouraging word to his heart. The Lord said to him in that moment, he, he said, Listen to me, my son. I always give the devil enough rope to hang himself with. The devil has no ability to know when to stop. And when he goes too far, the result is is what you're seeing now in Eastern Europe. And it occurred to me in in light of that, that that that, that what what may be the, the one greatest advantage that we have over the devil. Now listen to me, this is so simple. Probably everybody in the house already knows this. You've already figured this out. It's so simple. But when I saw it, it just thrilled me. Uh, what are the things that make us stronger than Satan? You know, patently, straightway, without going into all the deep ramifications of spiritual warfare, straight off the bat, what is, is the thing that makes us mightier than Satan? Well, I believe that one of those things is the fruit of the Spirit. We have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, right? As Christians, with the presence of God in our lives, He develops the fruit of the Spirit inside of us. Well, listen, Satan has no fruit of the Spirit. He has the fruit of the flesh, but he has no fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, I would say, and you, you can argue with me if you want, but I would say he has no self-control. Therefore, Satan doesn't have the control to know when to stop. His tactics will always become more and more brutal and more and more lethal and more and more horrible and and more and more overt. He has no self-control. He doesn't know when to stop. He can't stop. His his bloodlust just drives him and he refuses to accept even the limitations of his own plan because he has no self-control. And he lacks divine wisdom. His wisdom is earthly, sensual. It's from below. So he doesn't have the wisdom to plan a plan of attack and consummate that plan to try to defeat the overall plan of God. He has no perseverance because faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. I mean, why does the Scripture say this? Listen to this simple passage of Scripture. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because when you submit to God, now don't, don't, don't try the second part without the first part. You have to submit to His authority first. When you submit to God and resist... He has no way to deal with that because Satan wants everything now. Delayed gratification is not in the satanic repertoire. So when you resist, when you resist him, he just can't handle it. He can't stand that. Now, if Christians could learn this, they could better defeat temptation and sin in their own lives. If you delay long enough, Satan will be terrified of you because he has no self-control and he has no ability to wait and he has no perseverance and he has no faithfulness because those things are all the fruit of the Spirit. All he knows is is to kill, steal, and destroy and do it now. And if his plans are delayed, he just can't stand it. The greatest secret, I I believe, even historically speaking, is is his lack of self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and Satan has none. So, all that to say, so when, when God gives him an open door to attack, he never attacks wisely or well. He just attacks with all of his troops, all at once, all at the same time, full force of evil, and he always winds up going too far. 
So with Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, uh, uh, Satan pushed him to the very, very outer limits of depravity with lust and perversion and violence and evil and godlessness and even murderous, wicked human sacrifice. And he, he pushed the nation and he, farther and he pushed the king farther and further and further and further. And, and Satan said to himself, I have destroyed this nation. I have destroyed this king. I have destroyed this kingdom. I have so thoroughly polluted the spiritual atmosphere that there is no hope. And then along comes this little boy king. I mean, 25 years of age. And the older I get, the more 25 years of age looks like a baby. Can I get an amen? You know, 25. Anybody anybody that's 25 isn't even completely human yet. They're still in the tadpole stage. You know, you laugh, you laugh when I say that, but, but listen, that's even what it says in the Constitution of the United States because you cannot even be elected as president of this country at 25 years of age because the Constitution says that at 25 years of age, your brain is not fully formed. That's what it says. So seriously, though, I'm, I'm joking, but seriously, though, I mean, one of the great strengths of young people is that they have no judgment. That's one of their great strengths. They, in other words, what I mean is they don't know enough to be afraid. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you ever seen old men fighting in wars? No, old men are the generals. You, you, you give me a gun and say, look, there's a machine gun on top of that hill. I want you to go take this gun and run straight at it. I'm going to look at you and go, yeah, right. But you give that same gun to a 19-year-old and he says, all right, charge. Because his brain's not completely formed yet. So anyway, you have Hezekiah. He's on one hand, he's too young to have an expectation of some great, some great leadership. But on the other hand, 25 is plenty old enough to have been polluted by his father's depravity. His, his moral ladder by all rights should have had all the rungs knocked out of it. He should, have, he should be completely depraved from his father's sin and he should not be able to turn a nation to God. He, he, and yet his first order in the first month of the first year of his reign is to return to God. He, he, he steps up to the throne and he says, we're going to have revival in this country. It's in my heart to return to God. And I, I read that and that transition is so fast and so stark that I read that and I think, whence cometh Hezekiah? I mean, how did this happen? And I believe it's because the devil went too far. What happens when Satan goes too far in a life or a family or a nation? Well, here are some of the things. It, Here's what happens. First of all, Satan, he hopes to crush the will of man. Satan hopes to crush the will of man. He wants to bring us to the point where we are thoroughly and completely beaten in our ability to resist him and that we become subject to his satanic power in every way. But, but when Satan goes too far in his effort to crush the will of man, what happens is he instead crushes our self-reliance. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A people, a nation, a, a family, an individual wherein the will has been crushed 
that person or that nation or whoever it is totters on the brink uh, between humbly seeking God and knowing their dependence upon God and falling subject to the bondage of depravity and evil in their day. And I believe that when Satan goes too far in an effort to crush the will of the people, that in that vacuum, if you will, in that vacuum of willlessness, that in that place God can speak a will by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened, I believe, with Hezekiah. There's no place on planet earth that is impenetrable to the Holy Spirit. There's no place on planet earth that is, that, that is impossible for him to move. Somehow, some way, as Hezekiah walked the hallways of his father's palace, with, which was filled with harlotry and perversion and brutality and death and wickedness and even the human sacrifice, hearing the screams of babies being thrown into the fire, something in that moment as Hezekiah stood there and he hung over the, business, over the abyss, if it fell one way, it would fall into... He would fall into the depravity and the bondage of his father. And if it fell the other way, uh, then it would be life. And something in him rose up inside of him. And he said, I was not born for this. I was not born for this. I believe that when Satan goes too far, he creates the kind of vacuum, the kind of characterless willlessness into which the Holy Spirit can speak a will for God. You see, the only difference between rebellion and boldness for God is whether or not it's been breathed on by the Holy Spirit. You say, what are you talking about? Listen, parents, you may have a kid that's just driving you nuts at home. Don't raise your hand if if that's what's happening with you. Uh, But but instead of being afraid that Satan is going to push that kid. Now, it's scary, but listen, sometimes, sometimes the greatest hope you have is that Satan will push him right to the edge. And in that moment, I'm going to tell you at the end of this message what to do when you come to that moment. So uh, it's extremely important, so stay tuned. And when Satan gets him right to the edge, and you, you think this is horrible, he, he's, he's driving him right to the brink. In that moment, there is a crucial deci- d- division wherein a, a kid may, the same kid that may look you right in the eye with rebellion in his voice and on his face and tell you where to go and tell you to take your God with you. But I want you to know that same kid is facing a moment of decision and that same kid is the same child that can look society in the eye that is drenched with sin and, and, and filled with pornographic evil and, and wretched rebellion against God and, and can look that society right in the eye and say, you don't tell me how to live. I'm going to live for God. See, that, that's, in a way, that's kind of a holy rebellion that has to be integrated in the lives of our teenagers. When society tells you that you have to live in and accept and celebrate things that are contrary to the word of God, we need people who, who will reject that and who will grow a back, back, backbone and stand firm on what we know is true because we are too easily cowed. We are too easily frightened by our society We're too timid and there has to come that Holy Spirit empowered rebellion against sin. You don't tell me what to think. You don't tell me what my values are. You don't tell me how to dress. You don't tell me how to worship. I will serve the Lord. Isn't that what Hezekiah did, said to his generation? He said, it's in my heart to seek God. And I know you say, yeah, well, it was easy for him to be bold. I mean, he was king. But I want you to remember the history of the kings of Judah and Israel is littered with the dead bodies of murdered kings. 
They were a bloodthirsty lot, my friends. Brothers murdered brothers and cousins and, and nephews, and, and there was a rebellion. And, and, and Hezekiah, he walked up to that throne that day, and he said, it is in my heart to seek God. We're going to open the temple. You priests, you're dirty. Get cleaned up. You, the temple of God is dirty. Get it cleaned up. The nation is dirty. Our lives is dirty. And we're going to clean it all up. And they might have killed him. They could have killed him just like that. But Satan had gone too far. Satan had pushed the nation of Judah so far that they were thrilled to see a leader with some will. It, it, it looks to, to us like Satan is driving this nation to hell in a handbasket. We, we look at our leaders and the laws that are being passed and decisions that are being made by our Supreme Court and, and things are, that are being done. But listen to me, I want you uh, to, to just think about this. It may be that, that, that it will actually play into the hands of God that the wickedest laws could pos- that, could, that could possibly be passed, it will be passed in the next few years. It, it may actually be that we will come to a place where our willlessness, our, our mute, head down, cowed, willing submission to evil over the next few years if Jesus tarries, it may be that we will come to the end of all of that and, 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 and look at society around us and society as a whole or somebody around us says... This is not what we were born for. You know, in the novel From Here to Eternity by James Jones, there's a fascinating part that takes place in a naval brig. These young sailors that are in the brig, they're subjected to every kind of brutality by their guards that's imaginable, but they just submit to it until the guards take it one step too far. The guards put a poster on the wall of the brig and in the, it was a picture of Don, John, John Dillinger and it said, this is the worst murderer in America. He spent his first night in jail in this brig and you're just like him. And the prisoners just went crazy. They just went crazy because it, it pushed them one step too far. If somebody said to them, you're a criminal, they'd say, okay, I'm a criminal. You're a rapist? Okay, that's true. You're a murderer? Okay, fine. You're a thief? You're a liar? All of those things. But finally, they pushed it just a step too far, and, and something inside of those prisoners said, no, I am not like John Dillinger. I believe that Satan may be on the verge of pushing this great nation one step too far. I think he pushed the Ukraine 70 years too far and he created a will for God in that country. Second thing, Satan hopes to kill the hope of man by by stealing and destroying. He hopes to take away everything that that is good and useful. The evangelist evangelist I mentioned earlier said that when he went into that nation, he found that that the Ukraine was busted. And what I mean by that, I don't mean they were broke. I mean it was broken. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, they, they could have just put a sign over the, over the uh, door of the airport as you exited into the nation that said, everything in, in this country is broken, nothing works. I mean, the infrastructure was horrible. The bridges all had cracks. Every time you, they drove over a bridge, they would plead the blood of Jesus just to get across, across the, the river. The buildings were, were, were cracked and falling apart. The government was broken. Society was broken. And, you know, we hear people talking about developing nations, but Israel was, excuse me, Ukraine was not a developing nation. It was a degenerating nation. It was collapsing, was literally imploding around them. Well, what what Satan hopes to do, you you see, is he hopes to steal our hope. 
Instead, what happens is that he creates an atmosphere because he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to steal our hope and crush our hope. And he he creates an atmosphere in which we realize that our hope must be transcendent, that our hope must be in something eternal, that our hope must be in something outside of this world. So Satan pushes Joseph down and he pushes him into slavery and he pushes him into the pit and he pushes him into loneliness and he pushes him into isolation and he pushes him into Egypt and he pushes him onto the slave block and he pushes him into the prison house and he pushes him into false arrest and he keeps saying, if I push him a little bit further, then I can break Joseph's hope. But alone there in a prison in Egypt, accused of of an attempted rape that he didn't attempt, Joseph reached the point where he said, my only hope is in God. That's the only way I'm coming out of this. Satan thought he had crushed his hope, but he actually got him to the place where he looked to God as his only hope. When the devil goes too far, he makes people realize that their hope is is not found in anything in this life. And listen, I'm not giving you a word of prophecy today. I'm just trying to make an observation, so don't rush out of here and say, Pastor Dave had this big, wild word of prophecy. That's not what it is. We Pentecostals and Charismatics sometimes heard a word of prophecy when there isn't one. Uh, But what I am saying is this. I'm saying if Satan pushes the United States of America into out-and-out poverty, I'm not saying he's going to do that. This is what I mean. This is not a word of prophecy. But if he pushes America into a state of out-and-out poverty, bankruptcy, dead broke, just nothing there, I, for one, will believe that he is pushing it so far, uh, uh, pushing a nation so far that right now trusts in its luxury and trusts in its automobiles and trusts in its wealth and its houses and its prosperity and it trusts in Wall Street and when and that moment, if that moment were to come, we would have to say our only hope is in God. As Satan continues to push and push and push, and he tries to stamp out the name of God and the, and the, and the name of Christianity from every facet of public and private like. Listen, and it's coming. I want you to know that the church is the next target for many of these groups. You need to be aware. Don't be surprised when it comes. Don't, be, get, it, don't get angry when it comes. Uh, get angry with Satan and not with the people and begin to do the battle there. But, you know, when that happens, instead of everybody panicking, let's just catch our breath and be ready for that moment when Satan pushes our nation one step too far. I, I don't know when it will come. I just don't know. When you look at Russia, was Stalin murdering millions too far? Well, no, they still hung, hung in there. Was Khrushchev, uh, when he followed him, was that too far? No. Was Brezhnev, uh, when he followed him, was that too far? No. When Gorbachev followed him, everybody said, Gorbachev, the, the ultra-conservative, he was the director of the KGB under Khrushchev. Oh, no, we don't want him in power. Then Gorbachev walks to the microphone and says, well, we've been wrong about some things. What do you say we tear down this wall in Berlin? You ever remember that? He said, and the world was like, What? Where did that come from? It didn't, it didn't happen over a period of years or even months. They were, they were discussing it on CNN one night, and the next day they had bulldozers tearing it down. It was one of the most amazing things to see. And it was something that most of us who were alive at the time and, and understood what was happening never thought that we would ever see in our lifetime. And I can tell you this, a less likely candidate than Gorbachev in the, in the Soviet Union cannot possibly be imagined. Because under Gorbachev, people were arrested and they were thrown into prison for for possessing Bibles when he was leader of the KGB. 
Under Gorbachev's leadership of the KBG, Christians were persecuted. Under Gorbachev, uh, uh, Christians were thrown into insane asylums because they believed in God. And, the, and, and if there's no God, as, they, as the government said, then they must be insane. He was the director of the KGB while all of that was happening. But when he became the premier of the Soviet Union, he said, it is in my heart to change. And the nation in that moment was opened up for the first time in, in decades for the gospel to be preached. To that, to that nation. Satan just pushed one step too far. So don't panic when you feel Satan seems to be gaining momentum. You know, I can remember my younger brother Mark and I, we used to, we used to get, you know, like every sibling, we had our share of fights. But once in a while, we'd be both trying to play with the same item and, and we would get into a tug of war. That, anybody ever get into a tug of war with one of your, your siblings? And, and I used to use a tactic that would just drive him crazy because we'd get into that tug of war. And and thing about my brother Mark is that he's, 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 he's like a bulldog. He's just got this tenacity, this perseverance. He just doesn't want to give up. And I used to use it against him. He'd pull and pull and pull and pull on it. And I'd just wait. And then at the last minute when he would be pulling as hard as he could, I'd let go. He'd go flying. And I had the greatest laugh over that. But it just drove him crazy. The funny thing was that if he ever learned when to let go, he could have done the same thing to me, but his virtue became his weakness. And Satan, now I'm not comparing my brother Mark to Satan. Don't misunderstand me there. That's not what I'm saying. But Satan is like that. Satan doesn't know when to quit. We ascribe more wisdom to Satan than he has. He does not have the wisdom of God. He does not have the knowledge of God. You know, we we give him all kinds of attributes. He is not everywhere present like God is. He is nowhere near anything anything remotely similar to what our God is like. And he doesn't have self-control. Therefore, he pushes and he pushes and he pushes and he he leans all of his weight against the door and he says, Let me in, let me in, let me in. I'm going to steal, kill, and destroy. And his shoulders pressed against the door and God says, okay, let me open that for you. And he, boom, just goes flying. Don't be discouraged when it appears that Satan is pushing our nation into the ditch. Because it may be in the ditch that people discover their will to serve God. It may be in the ditch that people begin to realize we need to turn back to him. It may be in the ditch that people discover that their hope is in God. The third thing is that Satan hopes to starve the spirit of man by depriving them of God. He he thinks that he can corrupt and starve the spirit of man. And I want to bring it to a conclusion with this, but listen to this. He wants to starve the spirit of man by depriving them of God. But here's the problem. See, he just doesn't, he's, he doesn't have the self-control to stop because that's just who he is. He has this bloodlust to steal and, steal and kill and destroy. But what, the problem with that is that starvation does not kill appetite. Starvation creates appetite. It was a powerful story told by that evangelist in Ukraine. On the, uh, they, were, they were holding crusades at the night's. And on the third night of their crusade, when the people were packed in that auditorium, they had a choir in there that was on the risers, and they were just ready to start the music and, and get the crusade going that night. And, and just before they started, some American men walked into the, uh, to, the, to the front of that auditorium, right up the middle aisle of the auditorium, and they were carrying stacks of Bibles. 
And as they were carrying them, spontaneous applause erupted. A standing ovation, not for the Americans, not for the choir, not for the band, not for the music, not for the preacher, not for anything but for the Word of God. It was just a a moment of pure joy among those people. They had told the people before they got there that they were going to be giving out Bibles that night. And when they saw that stack of Bibles coming up the aisle, they just stood to their feet and spontaneously erupted in applause for those Bibles. And the evangelist thought to himself, Devil, you went too far. There's one little old lady, this is a tiny little lady, sitting about five rows back. And when they started handing out the Bibles, the crowd just pressed in. And she started working as hard as she could to get up there and to get one, to get her Bible. And she squeezed through with her, her little hand just straining forward. And, and when the Bible finally came to her, she just, she just took that Bible and clutched it to her chest and said, Oh! And she held that Bible to her chest and wept. And everybody in the choir just watched that and they just burst into tears. And the preacher stood there and he was crying and she just stood there holding that Bible. The whole, the whole congregation was seated, but she just kept standing there holding that Bible. Seventy years she had waited for a Bible. The devil had gone too far. There was a Russian interpreter working with the team who spoke Ukrainian, and the team, his name was Nikolai. Nikolai was a Christian. And one day in conversation they asked him, Nikolai, how did you come to Christ? He said, well, I came to Christ because my landlady gave me a Bible and she was sentenced to, to five years in prison for giving me that Bible. And, and he said, as they dragged her down the stairs and into the truck, she looked at him, at, at me, and, and he said, she said, Nikolai, I don't care anything about, uh, about any of this if you'll just promise me that you'll read the Bible. He said, I lied to the KGB and I told him, yes, she gave me a Bible, but I threw it away. He said, I spent her five-year prison term reading the Bible. And when she came out, the very first thing she said to me when she came into the building was, Nikolai, did you read the Bible? He said, yes, I want Christ in my life. He said, when I realized that that lady would invest five years in prison for my soul, I knew that I wanted what she had. The devil doesn't know when to quit. He says, if you could just lock this lady up, if I could just lock this lady up in prison and starve these people of of the Bible and burn them all and throw them in jail, I'll just starve them. The problem is you create an atmosphere in the entire nation that says we want God. We want the Bible. We want Jesus. You know, that evangelist on that trip, they went to several schools. It was really ironic at the time because... We had evangelists going into schools in Russia and in America. This, the government was saying you can't go into the schools and tell people about Jesus. But they were there. And the schools in their nation, they had different areas uh, for each school. So you, you might go to one that's a chemistry school, might go to another school that's a math school. But one of the schools they went to was actually an English school. And they wanted to do an English presentation for the, t- the traveling team. So they had one boy that was going to stand up and give them a speech in English. So, so he stood up and he gave a speech on, in English about Michael Jackson. All, all this had happened back you know, it was back in the days when Michael Jackson was a huge star. So, so, and so he gave this speech about Michael Jackson so he could use 
uses English. And he, he talked about how Michael Jackson lived in a big house in California and with his mother and he had four cars and he was going on and on about this or that. And after he was done, a couple of young ladies from the evangelistic team gave their testimonies and then, then the, the evangelist just spoke for just a few moments and, and the power of God was just moving in that school. All the teachers, the principal and all the teachers, they were all on the front row. And when the evangelist began speaking, they were sitting there with their, with their arms crossed in front of them. But as, they, as he spoke, they gradually leaned forward, more and more intense, listening to every word. They gave everyone tickets to go to that night's crusade. And every one of them came that night. Every single one of them. The invitation was given that night, the principal And every single teacher of that school came forward to receive Christ as Savior that night. Every single one. And the evangelist was talking with the principal of the school after the service that night. And the evangelist said, this is going to make a difference in your school, isn't it? You know, it's kind of one of those moments when you ask a question. And as soon as you ask it, you realize, boy, that was really a dumb question. This is going to make a difference in your school, isn't it? Because she looked at him like he was completely insane. You know, it's like, like when you drag somebody out of a well where they're dangling headfirst over a pit of crocodiles and you stand them up on their feet and you say, well, I hope this has been helpful. You know, it's kind of understatement. She just stared at the evangelist like, like he was nuts. And she said in perfectly English, make a difference in our school. Don't you understand? God has come. She said, don't you understand? Now my students can talk about Jesus Christ and not about Michael Jackson. Well, praise God. Well, the devil is pushing. Mary Beth, if you could come on up. He's pushing. He's pushing on America. He's trying to crush our will. He's trying to destroy our hope. He's trying to starve us. He's pushing. And, and, you know, you pray that he won't push too far. But if he pushes too far, I want you to know it's still not time to quit. If he keeps pushing and you think this is just, we just can't take anymore, it's still not time to quit. When the devil has pushed so far, now, now listen to me, here's, here's the crucial, crucial moment. When you have somebody that's right on the brink, right at the moment where, where if they go one way it's death and if they go the other way it's life, here's what you do. You pray that God will keep them alive physically while Satan pushes them too far. Pray protection around them physically and trust God to save them when the devil pushes too far. Now, I I, I never really fully understood the implications of what Paul meant when he said, I have handed them over to the devil that they might learn to repent. But I see it. You hand them over to the devil because the stupid devil doesn't know when to quit. And he will push them and push them and push them until he pushes them right into the arms of God. But our job during that time is to hold the ropes. To hold the ropes so that they are protected physically. Now listen, it's a desperation bit. It's wild. It's not for everybody. It's not for every situation. But there can come a moment in the life of a family or a child or a nation where you just hold the ropes one more day. And you open the door and the devil pushes one time too hard and the And then all of a sudden, the guy who's been a drunk for 40 years suddenly walks into your living room and says, I just can't live like this anymore. It's in my heart to get sober and delivered and find God. Or the prodigal that's been running from God for 20 years suddenly shows up at your home and says, I'm tired of running from God. I can't live like this anymore. It's in my heart to come home to Jesus. 
or the friend who's been addicted to drugs for years and that addiction has eaten away at his life and it has ruined his marriage and it has alienated his children and he suddenly calls you on the phone and says, I can't go on like this anymore. It's in my heart to get clean and to be set free from drugs. I want to come home to Jesus. Or the friend who's been a slave to pornography and it has ruined his marriage and consumed his life and he suddenly comes to you and confesses and says, I can't get free of this thing on my own. It's in my heart to come to God and make things right and find healing. It's in that moment you realize the devil just doesn't know when to quit. Listen, my friend, for our nation, for your family, for your friends, When you see the devil pushing and pushing and pushing, just don't give up on him. Just don't give up on him. Don't say, oh, he's pushed them so far, they'll never come back now. You just don't know. There is no one out of the reach of the Holy Spirit. And there can come that moment where the devil pushes them to the place where their will is so crushed that they finally say, I need to come home to God. That's what happened to the prodigal. He was pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until suddenly one day he woke up in the midst of what seemed like a nightmare to him and said, what am I doing? I need to go home. And that's what we pray for our nation. It's what we pray for our families, for that loved one that is lost that's running from God right now. That's what we pray. And we say, God, while they're running, just keep them safe so that they had the opportunity to, to come home. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes. I want to pray for you, and I want you to join me in prayer, and I want us to pray not only for individuals, but to pray for our nation, because the enemy is pushing our, our nation, but he doesn't know when to quit, and he's going to set the stage for the greatest revival this nation has ever seen. I believe that. Father, as we come into your presence, First of all, Lord God, on a personal level, we, probably everybody here has somebody that they love, a family member, a friend, somebody who's running from you, Lord God. And we're afraid, and it's just, it's just that worry, that, that anxiety that comes into our lives because we're just concerned because it seems like the enemy has pushed them so far away from you. But God, I pray that in the name of Jesus that you would help us, Lord God, just to have peace to know that even when that happens, that the, that, that the enemy can create an atmosphere where they will finally wake up and say, I need to go home. God, I pray that you would do that. And in the meantime, God, I pray that you would preserve them. The enemy wants to destroy them, but I pray, God, you would preserve them until the moment of their repentance. And God, for our nation, the enemy wants to destroy this nation because there's never been a nation that has sent out missionaries like this nation. There's never been a nation that has spread the gospel like this nation, and the enemy hates this nation. God, I pray that as we watch and we see things and we, our hearts are troubled and we're concerned and we say, what in the world? Is there any hope for our country? Is there any hope for the United States? I pray, God, that something would rise up in us and we would say, I know what God can do. Because if he could take a nation that was led by Ahaz, that was doing the things they were doing, and he could turn it around under Hezekiah, then God can do that in the United States. And God, I pray that you would do it. Lord, just just. Just sustain us. Give us hope. Give us peace. Give us strength. Help us to walk, walk boldly and speak the truth boldly, Lord God, in this nation so that we will be ready 
for that moment when the devil pushes too far. God, I thank you. I do believe that there is a revival coming. I do believe that even the the enemy himself does not realize that he is setting the stage. But God, I'm asking you for that great move of God in in our nation. And Lord, just make us ready. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.